quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Really have to know it really is a marriage. You have to expect we're going to be together for the next 10, 20 plus years. And so you have to really know who brings what to the table and what value can you create together. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed and I'm here with Brendan Degner. Brennan is joining us from Denver, Colorado. He is the operator and CEO of DB Capital Management, a vertically integrated organization focusing on value-add multifamily investments with a portfolio of around 3,000 units. Brennan, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, so starting with what we're currently focused on, because it relates heavily into my background, we currently focus on value-add multifamily Really Texas West. So we own assets in San Antonio, Austin, Denver, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas. And then we have a presence or a target presence in Phoenix. We don't have any assets there currently. And historically, we've owned in both Portland and Los Angeles. But in the last five years or so, four four years or so, we've made kind of a thematic exit out of those coastal markets. So going back, how that relates to my background, prior to starting DB, I ran asset management for a group called MJW Investments, and we were primarily a multifamily value-add shop with a heavy concentration or focus actually in student housing as well. So we really targeted student housing across the country and then the multifamily value-add. So when I left, that was primarily what my background was in. And didn't make sense to reinvent the wheel. I didn't really think I could raise capital around any other asset class, given that's where a predominant amount of my experience was. And so that's what we focus on today. And we've built a pretty cool machine. We've got a construction company based in Dallas that services all of our assets on the construction side. And then we just did a joint venture with a property management company that's based in Utah that has 30,000 units outside of us. But we did this kind of cool joint venture with them on our assets to really help them grow more into multifamily. They're predominantly student housing before. And so that's kind of how my background led into what we're focused on today. Value add multifamily investments. That's a very commonly used term. Let me make some assumptions here. Tell me where I'm wrong. You buy properties that are going to cash flow day one, but leave room for improvement. You target a roughly five-year hold period with likely a sale afterwards, a preferred return to passive investors, and a targeted internal rate of return on that five-year period? Yeah. So I would say over the last few years, we've seen a lot of our deals exit well under the five-year mark just because the market was on such a tear. I would say most of what we're underwriting today is back to that five-year period. So we would usually do a three to five-year underwriting. Most of our investors are funds or institutional investors that are pretty IRR driven. So that's kind of pushed us a little bit more towards three-year investments. But on average, we're usually valuing deals on a three to five-year hold assumption. I think right now with what we're seeing in the market, we're going to see that push out. Most of what makes sense 
On the debt side is a minimum of five years with the agencies right now. So five, seven, or 10 year lifespans are probably a lot of what we're going to see in the pipeline today. But on the further 10 years. Yeah, we're seeing probably the most accretive money on the agency side be 10 year. Like we have a quote right now for a deal we're recapping in Utah. That's a 10 year term full-term interest only and sizing well and all-in rate with the 10-year, because the yield curve is inverted, the 10-year is actually lower than the shorter options. So like your all-in rate is in the low fives at a point, probably a month ago, it dipped into the high fours. But as the 10-year ticked back up, it's gone back to low to mid fives. And that same loan on a five-year would be in the high fives, low sixes. So I might get a little bit of spread relief on the five-year, but not a ton. So we're just seeing for deals that are a little bit more stabilized, that you're buying at a good cap rate, that the 10-year money right now for us is where we're finding a unique opportunity to push cash flow a little bit more and value deals a little bit more aggressively than on the five-year money. Does that 10-year money also come with a steeper prepayment? Yeah, I guess every positive has a negative to it, but yeah, you're pretty much locked in. We looked at doing a structure that has an open prepay. I think it was after five years. And the great relief that you end up getting by going with the 10-year essentially gets washed away when you start to, because all that happens is they start to charge you more and spread or make up for it somewhere. So the couple of deals that we're looking at that structure with, we have to look internally and say, are we ready to hold this thing for eight to 10 years? Because you're pretty much locked into it for that time frame. You said that your investors are primarily funds and institutional investors. What size assets are you targeting right now? We generally are targeting 100 units and up. And depending on what market we're in, that's probably closer to 200 units and up. So I'd say our average deal size is in the 30 to $80 million range. I would say our sweet spot is probably in the 30 to $50 million. We're actually also a family office. My partner, Devin, his family is a group that started VCA Animal Hospitals. So we also come with a pretty strong balance sheet. So I think the deals that are in that 30 to $50 million range, we end up being a little bit more competitive because we're bigger fish in a small pond. Once we go above that and most of our competitors, similar, we tend to lose some of that competitive advantage a little bit. So I would say our best deals are typically around 30 to $35 million are really where we shine. Once it goes above 50, we become a little bit more of a commodity. I'd like to hear more about that niche. Niche doesn't feel like the right word here, Brennan, but you really shine on deals that are around 30 to $35 million in acquisition. Yeah. Acquisition um, or total deal cost. Yeah. Total deal cost. Gotcha. Yeah. A quick jot about my background so that you know better how to talk to me about this and to our listeners. Active owner operator in Cincinnati, Ohio, personal portfolio, just under 100 units. I have my own management company. I'm very involved in the day-to-day operations. So to me, a 30 to $35 million deal is so much larger than the stuff that I've looked at that Mm -hmm. I don't understand what parameters would make that acquisition cost or all-in look ideal to an investor. I've only ever done stuff smaller than that. So tell me, what are the factors at play here that make that the right deal size for you guys? 
When you're in that, what we think is a sweet spot is you generally have a large enough asset that you can fully staff it. So you're getting those economies of scale of being able to have at least one in, one out, one manager, one maintenance person. Usually once you're in the 30s, you're probably closer to at least a manager and a leasing specialist and a maintenance guy and a maintenance tech, let's call it. So from just like a time allocation or internal resources, it's much more efficient than buying sub 100 unit assets where you have to try and make up a staffing plan sometimes based on aggregation of units in certain areas and stuff like that. So we've really found that it's really tough for us to buy and do really well and perform really well unless we can have the right staffing plan in place, which at a minimum is really one in, one out. The reason we say that 30 to 35, and it's a very broad, it could be 25, it could be 40, but really I think the cutoff is when you're under 50, a lot of the very, very institutional groups aren't looking at it. So you kind of strip them out of the competitive set. And those are the groups that historically or over the last couple of years have had the resources to put up multiple millions of dollars of non-refundable deposits day one. Huge, huge amounts of capital that they're just throwing. They usually have large discretionary funds that they can close a deal on balance sheet and then refinance themselves out if they need to afterwards so they can really shrink the timetable to close deals. And we found that as we were competing more and more, I mean, in 2022, we bought a $64 million deal and a $74 million deal. But when we were competing on them, we weren't as well-resourced as we are. We weren't willing to put up that extra capital or move as quickly. So we kind of lost that competitive edge once we got up there. Whereas a $30 million deal, if we needed to close the equity on balance sheet, we could. Same thing up to about $40, $45 million. So that's really where we're competitive. So we really focus on that segment because it's more efficient from an operations perspective. From a corporate or a company balance sheet perspective, we're much more competitive. We can do a lot more things. We can be a lot more nimble. And we don't have to compete with other groups that can do those similar things on the larger deal. So it, we just end up finding that we have a more competitive makeup in that value range. Some examples are we closed a deal in Denver in 2021, where we had the capital raised. It was a seller that owns a lot of assets in Denver, Colorado Springs. We really wanted to perform for them. We had the capital raised, but the capital that we had raised was not really ready to fund until I think it was like 60 days post PSA which would have required us to use one of our extensions. And we really wanted to show well for this group because there was other stuff in the pipeline to buy. So we just closed it without having to use our extension, which I think was like 45 days. And we closed it on balance sheet and just waited a couple of weeks to get our money out from the capital that we had raised. So we can do that on a 30 to $40 million deal. We're not even close to being able to do that. Or we, we could have, we wanted to from an allocation perspective, we're not willing to do that as we move up the value train a little bit more. Brennan, I want to put my own words to a summary of what I just heard you say. If you could please correct me where I'm wrong for myself and for the listeners. Your range has a floor and a ceiling. Your ceiling is set by your competition. You didn't talk specifically about a need for a lower return than you have. 
But that's something that I've heard often from people who come up against institutional competition Mm -hmm. is that your ceiling is set by your competition needing a lower return than you need, but also having access to greater resources that make them a more compelling buyer to a seller. So your competition is really kind of setting your ceiling and your floor on what deals make sense for you is set fairly operationally that you're not going to buy properties that don't meet the minimum threshold of on-site management that you're looking for, which is at least one leasing tenant facing person and then one maintenance person. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think on the lowered return side, what we typically see is not because we look at deals on the JV side with institutional groups all day long. And depending on what asset type you're focused on, or I guess class, or whether it's kind of core, core plus, or value add, the return parameters for most of the institutional groups that we look at deals with for value add, you still have to fit in the same general box that we're targeting for some of our smaller equity checks. It's when you start to get into deals that are more of like the core plus that the the pool of capital really widens quite a bit in terms of what is core plus? What are my returns for core plus? And so some groups that's a 15, some groups it's a 12, but I think there's just a lot more because you generally step up in vintage too. So you just end up getting more and more capital that's willing to do deals like that. Assumably just from a risk adjusted return perspective, it makes sense for them. But I would say if, if you put an 80s deal out to market on the equity side from what we see, whether it's a $30 million deal or a $70 million deal, you're generally sizing that from a value perspective to the high teens project level IRRs. So I don't know that on the heavier value add space that you really get much yield compression as you move into larger assets. That's one of the reasons they're willing to allocate money to value add capital is because they need to chase that yield a little bit. In layman terms, Brennan, the more work that a property is going to need to achieve peak performance, the less the size of the property matters with regards to the returns that a buyer is going to be willing to take on. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets. We'll be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. I'm coming from a market, Cincinnati, Ohio, that a lot of non non-local investors have had serious trouble breaking into or scaling in. And a lot of that has to do with the average property size in our apartment inventory, but also the age of our apartment inventory here in Cincinnati. Maybe, I hope this is something all of our listeners already know, and I'm the one 
the odd one out here, but why is it that a 1980s vintage is going to require so much more work than something newer than that? It's just the physical plant of the assets changed quite a bit throughout the 1980s and into the early 90s. So materials used in the construction, especially as it relates to electrical, HVAC, plumbing, kind of your major systems pieces, the evolution of those, especially if you start to dip into the 70s and just the age, the general wear and tear on the life cycle, creates an environment where it's a lot harder to budget what the costs associated with executing your business plan are going to be because there's so many more skeletons in the closet and there's just so many more unknowns that get factored into it. As you get into the early 90s to mid 90s, you start to see the general stuff that just helped extend the standard wear and tear life of a property. You just don't have as many of those unknowns that pop up. So simple things that we do is that if a deal is older than 1990, we use a 10% contingency instead of a 5% contingency, or we try and kind of balance it out. But they always just come with more operational risk as far as the construction unknowns. The other thing is just because of where pricing and rents falls, you're generally more susceptible to inheriting problem tenants or delinquency and stuff like that. So on the property management or operations side, there's just more blocking and tackling or heavy lifting that goes into them. Third, final thing that I could think of off the top of my head is when you're a property manager trying to break into the industry, the thing you want to do as a good manager is generally not to manage an older 1980s deal with some lipstick put on it. You want to be in that new, nice building. So the talent pool that you're able to tap on the management personnel side is just a little bit more challenging as well. So you kind of get all these factors that come into play that make it so that the the risk has got to be worth the reward. That makes sense. As a Cincinnati investor, I guess we're just so accustomed to 1960s brick boxes that we all adapt our plans operationally and our budgets accordingly. Recently, I've done a lot of removing walls to make floor plans more open concept and contemporary. That's just the world that we live in though, I guess. Awesome. Well, Brennan, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Ready. Let's do it. What is the best ever book you recently read? So historically, I've answered this question almost unanimously as Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I think that's a little redundant. My favorite best ever book now is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. I'm re-listening to it right now. And for me to re-listen to a book means a lot. So well-written. Being a small business owner and a business builder, your brain and your gut read the book at the same time and and feel It's like therapy. You read through it and you're like, oh my gosh, this guy who's worth however many billions of dollars, he's going through the same stuff that I'm dealing with right now as he walks through the book. And then I still get chills when I think about it. I think it's like the last paragraph after they go... I won't spoil it for anyone who's not written it, but the last chapter is specifically kind of leading up to when they go public for the first time. And the last paragraph or the last sentence in the book still gives me chills. For sure. It takes a lot for me to want to read or listen to something more than once. Yep. I'm rereading Jew Dog right now. Great book. Yep. Brennan, what's your best ever way to give back? I do a fair amount of work with the City of Hope in Los Angeles. That's been my one way in the last few years to do so. We did a golf event this last year. I've been active in their Walk for Hope 
which is specific to women's cancers. And so my wife's mother passed away from ovarian cancer. So that's just been kind of something that we like to focus on as a family and, and actively trying to find other ways. I think one of the ways I continue to give back is we have team members that I went to the University of Southern California's Master's in Real Estate Development Program. And I speak at that usually once or twice a year. And I've hired team members from that program and continue to try and kind of build them. So from a philanthropic perspective, most involved in City of Hope, and then just from a business giving back perspective, it's definitely trying to stay involved with my alma mater. Thus far in your real estate investing career, Brendan, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? We have a ton of mistakes, so this is always hard to answer. My partner and I tried to do a, I guess it would be considered like a co-GP fund with another family office. And the mistake that we made was we didn't really properly vet their resources and access to capital and what their true discretion was. And long story short, we ended up raising more money. We were supposed to be the operator. They were supposed to be the capital. And it just didn't go the direction that we had anticipated. And we actually raised more money than they did. So we didn't do a good job of properly vetting our partners and understanding who's responsible to bring what to the table for the partnership for it to continue to be a partnership. And that just ended up blowing up in our face and took a while for us to pivot from. So as a best ever advice, I would say, if you're going into, especially an operating partnership, it's very different than transactional partnership on a single real estate deal. But if you're going into an operating platform with someone, you really have to know it's really is a marriage. You have to expect we're going to be together for the next 10, 20 plus years. And so you have to really know who brings what to the table and what value can you create together. On that note, Brendan, what is your best ever advice? I think one of the reasons we at least in my mind, have grown so exponentially so fast is we're very focused. So we don't try and bounce around from one asset type to another. We try and do a lot of rinse and repeat. It's why we built a construction company that's specifically focused on value-add multifamily. Our, our management team is specifically focused on value-add multifamily. Our acquisitions team, same thing. And I think that really gives us a leg up when looking at deals especially because of the way we set ourselves up to only look at a finite number of markets. So we're not really trying to enter into new markets unless we have like a team dedicated to them that's ready to scale. So I think that level of focus and investing intentionally in these markets is what's allowed us to scale a lot. And then on that note, it allows us to really learn from our mistakes and continue to iterate and get better because we're not having to dive into a different business plan each time. We're able to take the last one, look at what we did right, look at what we did wrong, evolve from that and make the execution that much better and that much better. Last question, where can people get in touch with you? Best place to go is our website. There's a form you can fill out. It goes to my email. I usually try and uh, schedule some time each week to catch up with uh, inquiries. So visit our website, dbcap.com and fill out the form and I'll reach back out to you. Brennan, thank you. Best of our listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thanks, Logan. Hope to be back.
Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.